Isaac Wardell, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Joel. It's great to be on with you again. L- last time we met you, you were in Charlottesville, is that right? Yes, good memory. I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is a university town just outside of Washington, D.C. But now, about a year and a half ago, I moved with my family over to your side of the Atlantic. Uh, yeah. And uh, we live now in Belgium because I am, uh, I'm getting a graduate degree here in uh, liturgical studies from the Catholic University of Leuven. Lovely. What language are you doing that in? It's actually an English language program. One of the things that really uh, excited me about the program, I had sort of an older mentor figure, uh, a guy named John Swinton up in uh, Scotland. Oh, no, John. Yep. Me onto yep. it. And uh, one of the things John told me about the program is that um, it's really, even though it's at a Roman Catholic university, you know, it's very historic. The program was founded in 1425, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, this program actually has a reputation for being extremely um, ecumenical. So like in a typical classroom setting for me, you know, it might be myself, it might be myself and, you know, 20 other people. Uh, but of the 20 other people uh, in the class, you know, it might be an even split between people in the Roman Catholic world and outside the Roman Catholic world. Yep. And then among the folks outside the Roman Catholic world, there's going to be Eastern Orthodox and Coptic and uh, Anglican and Pentecostal. A lot of people from Africa and the Global South, as well as from India yeah. and all over the world. And so to get the opportunity for a few years to study the liturgy and to yeah. study um, church history and kind of be in those conversations with those, with people from that um, sort of uh, varied of a background has just been a really, really rich experience, especially as a worship leader. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we could stop and talk about that for half an hour, but we yeah, should. Sure. We, uh, we're here to talk about, uh, primarily about your most recent release with the, the Porter's Gate, um, which is called climate vigil songs is that right that's right the yeah. newest project is called climate vigil songs and it's a very specific title because uh this is a set of songs that's sort of a compendium done in collaboration uh with the climate vigil movement which itself is a is a group of five or ten different nonprofit organizations all working together to try to raise awareness of environmental justice among churches mostly in north america but also all over the world yeah. Okay. So let's if just backtrack to for the listeners for a moment, um, just to to tell us a little bit about the Porter's Gate, because I think when we last spoke, you probably had the Porter's Gate bubbling away, but you you'd been doing Bifrost albums, and then you that's right. So you formed this new thing. Just tell us a bit about what is the Porter's yeah. Gate? What is it for? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, Joel. <laughs> so yes, yeah, some of your listeners may be familiar with this project I did years years ago, starting about fifteen years ago, called Bifrost Arts. But uh, my friend uh, Joseph Penzak and I started that project in 2007. Uh, but then in 2017, so a whole 10 years after Bifrost Arts, in 2017, my wife and I uh, had started to have all these conversations about um, how passionate we have become over the last you know, five or 10 years about ecumenical dialogue, about getting people around tables together who are from a wide variety of Christian traditions. It's something that was really important in our family, something that we value around our dinner table, and something that I had become more and more interested in when it came to worship and music. And so with that kind of background, uh, what we did in 2017 was we had this idea that rather than writing original worship songs with just a couple of our friends, or rather than writing original worship songs by myself even. Um, instead, 
to approach the process of writing new worship songs uh, from an explicitly sort of collaborative ecumenical um, viewpoint. And so in 2017, we got together about 50 uh, musicians, songwriters, pastors, scholars, uh, folks literally gathered around tables, like we had a bunch of eight top tables, and uh, and collaborated together um, writing original songs, not just based on sort of what maybe one person's individual experience was, but actually based on, um, you know, having a series of kind of conversations around the tables on a given theme. Yeah. So the very first album we made was called Work Songs, and the theme of that project was faith and work, sort of the relationship of what we do on Sundays to what we do Mondays to Fridays. And there was just this really rich, uh, this really rich experience of not just hearing about people's experience of faith and work from a Presbyterian lens or from an Episcopal lens or from a Baptist lens, but hearing about it from all these different perspectives, hearing from the black church and the white church, hearing from the Korean church, hearing from men and women and older and younger. And we felt right away like we had kind of hit on something Mm. because it felt like from that very first album, there was a sense in which the songs at the end of the process, seem to actually um, maybe speak to people's experience mm-hmm. in a more um, in a more profound way because they the songs were really written out of so many people's experiences as opposed to just being written from a particular individual perspective. So it's all just to say uh, that was five years ago, and we're now I think is this our sixth uh, full length record? I think this is about to be our sixth album, and each one. Uh, has had a particular theme, and for each one, we've gotten together. Um, we've gotten together folks from a v- wide variety of backgrounds and heard sort of theological input and gotten people's perspectives, and uh, and then written these original songs. And so, uh, like you said earlier, our latest project is called Climate Vigil Songs, and it has a particular theme of environmental justice and worship. Mm. It, it strikes me, looking um, across the the albums, that there's a there's a, a sort of an ongoing justice theme. Through them, um, and a sort of ongoing real life theme. Does it, is that fair? Is there something a thread that holds them together? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great question, Joel. I mean, I think you're correct. Um, that's not necessarily by design, but um, but I think it's been it's sort of happened organically. Um, the way the way I would actually describe the design piece, and of course, it doesn't always work out like you design it. The the design piece was when my wife and I kind of set out to do this project, I'd say the word, more so than justice, more so than real life, the word for us was hospitality. Um, The name itself, the Porter's Gate, it comes from this sort of early medieval notion in Benedictine monasteries that they would give a particular individual the role of the porter. And the porter stood at the front gate of the church community and was there to greet visitors and strangers and pilgrims and to meet their needs. And we just love that image. And so early on at the Porter's Gate, we had many, many conversations about what it means as worship leaders, as people who are ordering the life of a church on Sunday morning, what does it mean for us to see our role as that of a porter, of to see our role as the person who is making new people walking through the doors feel like they can really bring their whole lives into church? You know, that's sort of a welcome. And so in that way, I'm glad to hear you say that it feels like there's kind of a thread of real life in the albums, because I think that that part kind of fits into the hospitality, right? Like, if, if you're invited to bring your whole life into worship, 
Well, then, yes, of course, that means bringing your nine to five kind of work life into worship, right? That's work songs. It means being able to bring your lament and your sadness into worship. And we have this album called Lament Songs. It means being welcomed across lines of difference. And the that sort of lines of difference theme is our album Neighbor Songs. Um, and so the real life part, I think, comes out of the hospitality. But, uh, but I would say that over the last, especially since 2020, I do think that our albums have had a strong justice theme. Mm. And, and that, to me, just has to do with the times that we're living in. You know, I think that as we're trying to meet people and welcome people to bring their whole lives into worship, uh, it, it feels at a certain level uh, like it's almost kind of pastoral malpractice to not be addressing issues of justice, certainly in North America over yeah. the last couple of years, when that is absolutely what our people and what our neighbors are talking about, like what our what our own congregations and what our neighbors are talking about around their tables, and as they're trying to make sense out of the world, are very largely over the last couple of years issues of justice, issues of how do we live together across lines of difference in beautiful ways, and so it feels like um, the Porter's Gate and our projects. Yes, there has been maybe an inclination toward justice over the last couple of years. But that's not necessarily because I see this as being a justice project. It actually has to do with this being a hospitality project and wanting people to be able to bring those real conversations into worship. And and if I could say one more thing about it, too, I think there's also a sense in which part of the way that we choose these themes, I mean, it, it's somewhat organic, but part of the way we choose these themes is actually looking at um, the resources that the church already has and the kind of church songs that we already have and kind of looking for the gaps. You know? Like, yeah. where is it that we actually need more songs? And I do think that, especially when it comes to contemporary expressions of worship, I think it's fair to say that uh, over the last 35, 45 years of the contemporary Christian music kind of movement, that there has been uh, maybe a weakness in the area of lament songs and justice songs. And so those kind of themes of lament and justice are especially present in our music. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, well, absolutely agree. And and that's some of our approach has been very similar um, with Resound Worship and thinking about gaps Um and uh, of course, when when you're singing about real life and the real concerns of real people, then the climate is just an obvious place to go, isn't it? Um, but you know, we've identified that um, there's a there's a dearth, there's a lack of stuff to sing, and where there are things that make reference to creation and so on, they can quite often um, do so in a fairly Victorian way. Um, with particular ideas about um, heaven and and, and new creation yeah, that's or a, not. That, that's a great that's a great observation, Joel. That's exactly right. I wouldn't have been able to put it that way, but but that is certainly one of the weaknesses. Yeah. So so just uh, let, let's zoom in on the on the climate visual songs. And first, uh, I'm just interested in how you got into partnership with with the um, with the groups you were working with on this. Like, <laughs> you know, how was it initiated? Yeah. How did it work? That, that, that's a great question. It's it kind of been a long story. So I'll try to give a try to give a concise version that's not just horribly boring. Um, as a little background, I had had kind of on the shelf for a couple of years this idea that we really should make a point of getting to writing some worship songs dealing with creation, care, and environmental justice for the reasons we've just been talking about. I think that there's a, that there's a gap in that area. And in particular, um, you know, at the risk of being super, not to get go down a deep theological wormhole, but 
you know, there's this very ancient Christian doctrine. I mean, going back to at least the fifth century, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, uh, that is the idea that the law of prayer, you know, supersedes the law of belief, or maybe put more casually, as we pray, so we believe, you know? That there's a sense in which the church has always had this understanding that the things we do in our liturgy, the things we pray about, the things we sing about, those things are not only reflections of what we believe, but they actually shape what we believe, right? And I know that's something that many of your listeners will already have thought about and talked about a lot. And so when it comes to an issue like environmental justice, you know, this is one of these places where um, our North American context... uh, I would say is a bit different than the continental context or the UK context. Mm. Um, And I say that based on having been attending church here for the last year and a half, that at my church in Brussels, it feels like the most natural thing in the world that we pray and talk a lot about environmental justice. But many of your listeners may be aware that in a North American context, especially among sort of conservative evangelical churches, there's um, a lot of suspicion around the environmental Mm -hmm. justice movement uh, because of some political idolatries and the ways that the church in North America identifies very strongly with a political party that's sort of critical of environmental justice issues. So uh, it's all just to say that uh, when it comes to the subject of environmental justice, it seems very clear, I mean, especially to many of your listeners, that this is something that Christians should care about, that most Christians around the world actually do care about, and that the church has historically cared about, this notion of creation care and being good stewards of the world that God's made. But if you worship at a church that uh, that mainly uses sort of contemporary expressions of worship from the last hundred years— it's very, very unlikely that you have in your song sort of selection songs that deal with creation care and environmental justice in a meaningful way. And so that has just been in kind of in the back of my mind for several years, thinking that's something that we ought to get to at some point in time. So no real plan, but just kind of knowing that it was back there. And then what actually happened was about, goodness, it's been a while now, about two years ago, uh, a friend of mine named Peter Fargo. Uh, Peter actually vocationally was not working in the church, but Peter was working for the forestry service. So kind of seeing firsthand uh, the effects of uh, climate change through his, you know, being on the front lines of fighting forest fires in the Pacific Northwest and North America. Uh, very devout Christian. And Peter had this idea that he wanted to try to get more churches excited about praying and um and uh, attending to environmental justice and worship. So Peter approached me through a mutual friend and asked if we might be interested in doing a project like this in a collaborative way. And then to make a long story short, in 2021, sort of one thing led to another uh, with more and more partners coming onto it. Um, The Evangelical Environmental Network, uh, World Evangelical Alliance, World Vision UK, um, I think that as Peter began to reach out to others to say, would you be enthusiastic about this? Uh, what we found was that folks were not only sort of like, that's a good idea, but people actually wanted to partner in a more meaningful way. Mm. And so that's how the sort of climate vigil movement came about was uh, a number of these different organizations saying we should try to partner together in a really meaningful way and maybe use this album as part of trying to spread the word, certainly in North America, about uh, this movement, the climate vigil movement, to try to get churches, individuals, small groups, college groups, actually getting together and praying together and worshiping using these songs uh, to get their worshiping communities more excited about God's work of creation, care, and environmental justice. 
I mean, so as you know, um, I'm excited to talk to you about this because, you know, we've been on a similar journey uh, with our, our Doxicology album. And yeah. um, I'd, I'd love to compare notes on a few things. <laughs> uh, and particularly one of the things that we found was that our our first attempts were quite ham-fisted. Uh, maybe this is true yeah, with lots of these things. Right, you come at right. a new theme and you, you, you struggle to articulate or you try to articulate everything. And, and I just wonder, how did you kind of focus in on the key themes, the, that's kind of the key messages of the songs? <laughs> that, that's a great question, Joel. And, and you're, naming a, uh, you're naming a big tension that we sort of had as we were trying to create these songs. Um, uh, let me just answer really briefly about the big picture, how it's kind of always a struggle, like you said, yeah. and then more specifically our specific struggles with this project. What's always a struggle with these Porter's Gate albums is that they're always you know, centered around a particular theme. And what that inherently means is that as we start to write songs, there's this kind of built-in tension that if you try to write songs that are really, really specific to the theological theme, you can get kind of ham-fisted, to use your phrase, or just a little bit too on the nose. It can kind of lack artistry and mm -hmm. feel like sort of what I call, quote-unquote, message music, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like not really about the artistry. It's not really about the craft. It's just about trying to cram a message in. Or if you go to the other side and say, well, we'll just kind of make it general and kind of vaguely hit at the, at the topic, well, then it's easy for people not to even catch the theme at all. You know? yeah. And so that's a tension that we always have. And um, frankly, one of the ways that we try to deal with it is with volume. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when we make a Porter's Gate album, let's say that that song, that the album at the end has 10 to 12 songs. It's pretty typical for us. Um, if we release an album with 10 to 12 songs, it's pretty likely that we've written 200 to 400 songs to get down to those okay. 10 to 12. Um, and that's part of the process of having so many people involved. I yeah. mean, not only does an individual song often have four or five, six writers, but then there might be a total of 50 or 100 writers who contribute to an album because of these kind of gatherings that we have where we have so many people writing. And I think that that has helped us um, to try to find the... I don't even want to call it the middle ground, but to try to find um, to try to find that spot, that kind of sweet yeah. spot of the songwriting process, where it's clear that this song is addressing a particular theme, yeah. but it's doing it in such a way that it's just universal enough that um, that it doesn't feel like it's um, that it's too on the nose. So that's all just to say. Yes, like you, Joel, we struggled with that when we first started on this uh, climate justice project, and the way that I kind of. Um, the way I chose to approach it when it came to giving our songwriters kind of advice and direction was to say that we wanted to write for this album at least three different kinds of songs. That one kind of song we want to write are essentially like songs of lament. We want to write songs lamenting the state of creation because of human sin and the sort of brokenness of the world. That's one kind of song. That secondly, we wanted to write kind of like hopeful, you might even call them like eschatological songs, yeah. like writing songs that are joyful, that are about this is the world that God has made. This is, this is God's creative work. This is how God calls us into his creative work. Those are the kind of creation care songs, you know? And then lastly, we wanted to write mobilization songs, songs that have some kind of an ethical component of calling people to action in some way. And so by trying to sort of narrow it down to those three categories, feeling like, all right, that's three different kinds of songs that in many ways we don't, we don't really have a lot of any of those three right now. 
And then from there, recognizing that, you know, some of them might end up being really, really hymn-like and well-suited to congregational singing. Some of them may end up being a little bit more like a a reflection, a Christian devotional song that's more well-suited to the offertory or a special music moment or something. And then that some of them might even be kind of call and response or something. But we sort of set out from the beginning to say, because this is such a gap in the church kind of contemporary worship catalog, anything we do is kind of good to contribute <laughs> yeah. to the pool. And we want to make sure that the record's not too much of a downer, like all the yep. songs, you know? We want to make sure that it's not too much of a happy clappy, isn't creation beautiful? Yeah. And we also don't want to let it just delve into being a 100% kind of political action record, which is the mobilization songs. We want to balance those things. And so our hope is that by trying to do all three of those things, that some of that, some of that intersectionality between um, songs being really, really on message and songs being generally usable. Yeah. I hope that that it's in the mix somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that that makes sense to me. It makes sense from purely from a kind of creating an album point of view. You, you're trying, as well as trying to create individual useful pieces of art, you're trying to create a whole, which in itself yeah, has a kind of appeal right. and engages you when you're listening to it, as well as engaging when you sing it and different songs will play different roles. It kind of, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, and the way that expresses itself on the album too, is that the album, you know, it kind of covers a lot of ground. I mean, like one of our lament songs gets as specific as saying, um, like calling out to all creation lament, saying all creatures winging in the air, cry out the failures of our care. Yeah. Um, shout through the clouds of smoke and ash choked with the fumes of poison gas i mean that's really really on the nose but then we also have things like we have a song called hosanna will you rise that i think you know when you understand that it's about environmental justice you definitely hear it in the song Mm. but i think that you know if you weren't thinking about it at all the song also just feels like it could be in a normal kind of a worship service because it's very scriptural and it's got these lyrics about, oh, you know, the rocks cry out, the waters rise, and we cry out to you, God, will you, you know, will you rise? Will you deliver us? There's a sense in which, well, that means a lot of things, as it should mean, but I think it's extremely applicable when it comes to conversations around environmental justice. Fill the sky with lamentation Shout through the clouds of smoke and ash Choked with the fumes of poison gas Tell us about degradation Lord have mercy Dig in a little bit then to to some of the songs. So you've got a, a range of things. One of the things that struck me because you were kind enough to send me a, a copy of the album to listen to um, while you were working on it, which was which was great. Um, 
And I mean, one thing that struck me is it has more of a studio sound than we've heard before from Porter's Gate. Was that a, a deliberate decision? <sighs> yeah, you know, it's so interesting that you say that, Joel. That, 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 that's probably correct. I mean, we have a... I would say we've had a bit of a pendulum swinging back and forth on what these albums sound like. Mm. The very first one we did was extremely live. And when I say extremely live, I mean, we recorded the first album, not just live with all the instruments in the room, but also with a crowd of 50 people in the room. So it really sounds like a recording of a church in some ways, because that's what we did. We just had a chapel with 50 people and all the musicians. So that's kind of one side of the pendulum, very, very live and kind of performed sounding. Or there's, you know, and other times we've made it a little bit more studio sounding because we're actually in a real recording studio doing it. And um, so we've kind of swung back and forth on it. I think that the reason, it's interesting hearing your take on it. You're, you're actually the first person I've talked to about this all album. Right. So, uh, <laughs> okay. so it's, it, I, I think that that take makes sense. But I think that the reason it probably sounds a little bit more like a studio album is because we ended up dividing these recordings. We, we recorded this, this album over three different sessions in three different locations with different groups of people. And so part of the way that we've kind of tied it all together to make it feel coherent has been tying it together with various piano and keyboard overdubs. And those overdubs, I think, uh, the more of those you add, while hopefully it makes it feel more professional and lush, yeah. it also does uh, lend a certain kind of studio sound to it. So that, that's probably where that comes from. I really enjoyed... Um the kingdom is coming. This is one of the the tracks, and I, I like the way it, you also you, the thing you sent. Maybe you've had it as part of a press release and stuff as well. But just like little explanations of the songs, and that with this one you were kind of thinking, are we praying? Are we praying for the kingdom? Are we waiting for the kingdom? Are we working for it? And then kind of realizing, well, as it often is with the kingdom, all, all those perspectives are true, um, and that it what what results is um, what. I don't, have you read John Bell's book, The Singing Thing? Yes. He talk, one of the things Bell. he talks about with yeah. songs is that they enable work. And I think that felt yeah. like that was a particular thing with this song is to keep you marching. Can you tell us yeah, a little bit more about right. this one? Yeah, so the song you're referring to called The Kingdom Is Coming, like you said, um, it falls into the category, that third category of song I was talking about earlier of a mobilization song, a song that we want people to be excited, get people excited about the work that there is to do. So it's a very upbeat song. And it's it's a little bit in that sort of American gospel tradition of call and response, you know, where everybody sings one line and then the person up front, you know, calls out a different line. And the chorus, the refrain of the song you're referring to, has the people, uh, the sort of congregation or the marchers or whoever it is, the people are saying, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming, all creation groans. But the person who's kind of leading the chant says the kingdom is coming, we are praying for it. The kingdom is coming, we are waiting for it. The kingdom is coming, we are working for it. Saying all three of those things. And so, yeah, the idea, I think the idea for us has been that in some ways this is a little, this is reminiscent of an album we did a few years ago called Justice Songs. And uh, the album we did called Justice Songs, we asked the same kind of question that we wanted these songs to be, um, to be both something that you can sing in church because of the fact that it's really, you know, biblical language and it's really about God's work in the world, but something that is actually, that takes the world so seriously, that takes human action in the world so seriously, that these songs could equally be sung, like, in a protest. Like, these songs could equally, equally be sung in the public square and that they also make sense. 
And so, um, mm. so that's kind of the space that this song emerged from was feeling like, yeah, this is, there is a joyfulness and a hopefulness in that kind of eschatological hope that God's kingdom is coming in this world. And yet there's also this ethical call of saying that we are waiting for God's kingdom to come. We are praying for his kingdom to come, but God is also giving us work to do. Mm. And so that's why we are working for the kingdom that is to come. And so I think that um, that's sort of the spirit of the song. And then, um, and then from there, you know, like you said, the, I think the, the studio part of it just has to do with so we had you know a little little gospel choir on the song and great singers like Josh Garrels and uh, this emerging singer in the USA named Tarian, uh, sort of performing the song as a duet. Like a lot of our songs, uh, we feature both a, ma- a man and a woman mm. singing together, um, especially because I feel like that format of the kind of male female duet is very popular in churches. Yeah. So when we can kind of like provide songs that work well into that format, it feels like it makes them more likely to be done in churches. The kingdom is coming. Mm, we are praying for it. The kingdom is coming. We are waiting for it. The kingdom is coming. We are working for it. The kingdom is coming. Yeah. In all creation Is all you kings come and join the work? He's restoring all things. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try another question. I'm aware sometimes when you when you talk to somebody about some work they produce and you start saying, oh, "I see this thread in it," or "I see that thread," sometimes it's a complete surprise to whoever has produced yeah, it. Right, but, right. but I suppose another thing that that comes out and is kind of inevitable in this theme is a sort of a way of. A way of handling the theme is to kind of assign personality to the earth, the sun, yeah. the moon, the creatures. Having the earth and be so, a character. Yeah. yeah. And was that a conscious thing or did that just emerge as you wrote? <laughs> so first of all, I'm super glad to hear you say that because okay. this was indeed on purpose. <laughs> okay, good. And, uh, and and I hope I don't scandalize any of your listeners here, but, but this really was um, this really was an interesting journey for me where, um, you know, when I was growing up, um, this is a slightly long answer to your question, but I think it, it's pertinent. When I was growing up, I used to read books like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and The Chronicles of Narnia, and The Lord of the Rings, and these things. And, and I was reading those books in a Christian context. My, my, my father was a pastor. You know, we were a very devout household. And, and when I read those books, you know, both my parents and Sunday school teachers and other people in my life, in my life would explain to me these stories are actually, you know, it's a little story that's actually a way of telling the big story about God's work in the world, right? And many of your listeners will be familiar with that about these books. Well, like uh, like you and I were chatting about earlier before the call started, um, my kids are kind of primary school age. You know, my, my kids right now are age 6 to 10. And a couple years ago, they really got into this uh Pixar Disney movie called Moana. Yeah, and yeah. Moana, for those who haven't watched it, it's a, it's a brilliant musical with music by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And it takes place uh, among a group of indigenous peoples in the South Pacific. And uh, there's this whole aspect of the story where because of the sin of a particular character, that all of creation is now suffering, that literally the trees are dying. And there's this whole sense in which... Um, Creation is suffering and that the sort of uh, the heart of creation has to be restored and that uh, there's all this fear about 
there's all this fear of, you know, what's going to happen when they go try to return the thing. But anyway, at the very end of the movie, if you've seen it, you may remember, there's this kind of beautiful image that happens where wind creations is restored, that everything that was rocky and barren and dry and burnt and dead starts coming to life in a way that's that's actually very beautiful and evocative. You know, the way that Pixar often does. It, it looks really beautiful. And uh, we were watching the behind the scenes of the, you know, like the behind the scenes on the DVD of Moana a couple years ago. And the people who wrote the story, you know, like like Disney and Pixar so often do, they really took it seriously. And they spent a lot of time in the South Pacific visiting these different islands. And when they were doing all this visiting, um, they were talking to one of these kind of elders of one of the tribes. And the elder kept talking about the ocean as being as having a personality that the ocean had was like a character and so these writers of moana said oh that's so great in this animated cartoon we should make the ocean a character and those of your listeners who have watched moana know exactly what i mean that the ocean the water is a character that interacts with the other characters and so that was in the back of my mind i thought to myself what a great way of telling this story about creation being restored is actually for the cartoon, you know, that mm. in this kind of cartoon version that the way they tell the story of creation being restored is that creation itself is a character in that cartoon manifested in the form of this kind of the ocean having kind of a personality. And, uh, and so I thought to myself when we were going into this project, I love the idea that when we're singing about creation, when we're singing to God, actually recognizing that you know, the writers of Moana, maybe even if they weren't Christians, they stumbled into something that's really, really true that the Bible describes very explicitly, that God's creation is a character in the story of redemption. That God's creation uh, describes creation as having a voice, that the rocks and trees will cry out, that the trees will clap their hands, uh, that throughout the scriptures, you see the sense in which um, God's created world uh, is actually a participant not only in um, not only in the fall where you see like all of creation's crying out and groaning, mm. but also in redemption where things are made new and creation claps its hands. And so, yes, you're correct to identify that in at least four of the songs um, we do have this um, sort of personification, like sort of talking about creation mm. in personal ways of saying, yes, this is what this is what God's creative work in the world might look like or feel like or sound like from the perspective of creation and not just from the perspective of um of human beings. And that of course that's most clear in the song Declaring Glory, where it's a whole sort of I think almost like a little theological treatise about what about what creation felt like to the world itself, sort of singing a song of praise to God from the perspective of the earth. Yeah. I love the poetry in that one, actually. There's a beautiful yeah. bit about um, the, what is it, about the creatures walking on my skin or something like that. It's re really, uh, really beautiful. Yeah, I, I'm extremely uh, I'm extremely proud of that song. And I feel like I can say that with total humility because I'm not one of the writers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it, the, the song is called um, De Declaring Glory, the Earth sings its refrain one of my favorite verses says uh 
talks about the mountains rising. It says, and again, this is coming from the earth. Like yeah. it's like the earth talking. It says the mountains rise, the forests grow before my eyes, the moments and the seasons unwind, then turn again, embracing the tide. The waters fall and carve their way across my soil. Their canyons cutting deep in my soul. I'll praise you as the rivers still roll. Um, just yeah. this idea of everything God is doing, even making the rainfall, is uh, is God's creative work in the world. Yeah, and I love that you. I love that you began your answer in um, a Disney film because you, yeah. you sort of you could, you could have begun in Psalm one hundred and four and made a case for the community of creation and oh, so because it so really funny. is a, a, a biblical yeah. theme. interesting that you said um you know at risk of scandalizing your listeners because i know you're aware that with this topic as with some of the other ones that you've covered in in porter's gate records you 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 are walking this line where you're going to handle some stuff where there's always a risk of switching people off as well as switching them on and how 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 did you handle like in specific (laughs) lyrics were you sometimes saying if we say that all yeah. these people won't sing this song, but if we say it this way, they might. Or did you just say, let's go for it? You know, that, that that's a great question, man. And I, I think that um, there's kind of an irony at work. And uh, the sort of situational irony we find ourselves in is that a lot of what comes out in the world of sort of top 10, top 20, big contemporary Christian music, you know, that world. A lot of the music that comes out of that world um, is written by pretty young people. A lot of times it's written by folks who are like in their 20s or you know early 30s it's written a lot of the music that comes out of that world is not necessarily written by people that have like you know theology degrees or some kind of you know acumen in that mm-hmm. area and the kind of irony of the situation is that with the porter's gate uh, it's very highly likely on almost any song you're going to pull out. I mean, there are many, many people writing these lyrics with our project that have PhDs in theology and yeah. master's degrees in theology, people collaborating and editing each other. So there's like a lot more that goes into the editorial process. Um, and so there's a sense in which one would think that that would mean that these Porter's Gate lyrics, that all everybody would think, oh, they're so they're so theologically rich, like we wouldn't be criticized for them because yeah, yeah. there's so much more theological work <laughs> that goes into these songs than I think that goes into some songs that end up being very popular yeah. on Christian radio. And yet, it's actually the case that the opposite is true, and you're kind of getting at this, that I think because of taking on specific theological ideas, because of getting specific, because of kind of getting into the weeds, what often happens is that, um, you know, when we kind of get into controversial subjects, that we will have, we'll hear criticism or we'll hear people interacting with saying, I don't know if I could sing that in church, mm. right? And yet, the, the same people that are saying that might have no problem singing things in church that are kind of very popular in the sort of CCLI top Christian music world that aren't necessarily very theologically thoughtful or reflective. And I'll give you a great example of this. Mm. We uh, have a song in this album called Jubilee, which is loosely a setting of Psalm 37. 
And, uh, and so the song starts right out, right out of the gates. This is a worship song that says, the wicked will lose what they stole. Or what is the first one? It says, the, uh, what is the first line of the song? The meek will inherit the earth. Yeah. The meek will inherit the earth. The first will be last, and the last will be first. The meek will inherit the earth. Then it goes right into the wicked will lose what they stole and all they thought they could own and control. And and talking to people about, like, that's the kind of lyric that is actually off-putting to people. People being like, well, I don't want to sing about the wicked. (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's not something you want to do in church. And yet that's coming straight from the psalm. Yeah. As opposed to somebody being like, oh, I love the idea of singing about this very frilly, this sort of very frilly language about... Uh, about I'm I'm resting in God's arms of love or something, which might be kind of extra biblical language. So it's all just to say, I think that the way we've had to approach it is to say, we're really putting a lot of energy uh, into the theological work of these songs. Yeah. That energy is coming both from the writers. I mean, you know, we just talked earlier about the fact that I've giving over these entire two years of my life to doing this graduate fellowship and liturgical studies at, you know, a very historic uh, university here in Belgium that we love to involve people in the writing process, like folks like John Swinton, Mm. uh, these PhD sort of theology professors. And it's necessarily going to be the case that as we take on subjects that uh, have this kind of lightning rod function uh, politically, it's of course it's going to be the case that when you talk about those subjects, that people's ears are going to perk up, that people are going to become maybe hypersensitive, that people are going to be looking for some kind of a hidden message or a hidden agenda or something. Yeah. But that if we feel like the lyrics and the themes we're bringing are biblical in nature, and we have had many editorial eyes kind of look over them, there's a certain sense in which I feel pretty confident that if we're giving people, um, if we're giving people the words of the scriptures, if we're giving people concepts that I, that I feel like have really been vetted by people from a variety of theological backgrounds, that I feel pretty confident about putting these songs onto people's lips uh, in the context of singing in church. when it comes to some of the political the political criticisms um i think you ha- we have to just trust god with those that people are on their own journey um with our justice songs record there was a um a bit of a stink because we did a um we did an, a song on that album that was almost i mean almost just like a verbatim retelling of the story of zacchaeus and about zacchaeus how he robbed all these people and then at the end he made reparations for all he had done wrong and I kept getting sent these like blog posts from these, you know, super um, conservative kind of Christian outlets in the USA where people were had such a hard time, people wanting to fight the culture wars and fight against critical race theory or fight against Black Lives Matter or something. And they'd be really critical of that song saying, okay, okay, sure, it's just the story of Zacchaeus, but we all know what they mean. What they mean is this is like a Trojan horse trying to get reparations into the church and doing it through telling the story of Zacchaeus. And, and my response oh. to that kind of thing just has to be like, you know, if it's a Trojan horse, it's kind of a Trojan horse that's built into the Bible. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, that's the story. We're kind of retelling the story as it is. 
Um, and so that's kind of how I feel about this project. I think that this project has some places yeah. that are, um, you know, there's some moments in this record. There's, there's a song called um, Satisfied where we get into um, how we have consumed. Uh, God, we have given, we've taken more than we've given, that we are um, entangled in consumption and greed, the ways that we overuse creation. But it's the kind of thing where it kind of feels like, you know, if this was a preacher getting up and preaching a sermon and saying this, we would receive it and say, yeah, you know, that's true. That's what we believe about people. Um, but when you put it into song form and people kind of have to say it about themselves, I think that um, I think that it can make people feel um, yeah. make people feel a little bit vulnerable. So uh, so anyway, I feel like I've taken a little too long on this on this answer, but we certainly think about it. We certainly try to get a lot of theological minds um, on the concepts and on the subjects. And I think, you know, as kind of a final word on it, one of my goals, it it feels like when you come out of a worship service, if as you leave the service, you're talking to your friends about it and everybody that attended the service all just felt like, you know, I just loved everything about that service. Everything about the worship service affirmed everything that I believe and it was, I felt very easy. If you were never provoked, if there was never a provocative moment of the service, there's a sense in which, like, it may be the case that the person, the people putting that worship service together, maybe maybe missed an opportunity, right? Like, like maybe it's a good thing for us to be provoked. And so I have actually joked, I've joked with some of my fellow collaborators before about, like, you know, I want to have a couple provocative moments on every record where there are places that after you finish the song, you're going to turn to your neighbor and say, oh, wow, I'd never thought about such and such before. Or maybe I don't know what I think about such and such uh, moments that actually do sort of provoke some deeper thought and reflection. That feels like it, it has a function in worship to me. Hmm. Yeah, I hear that. And I, I know as well from from our experience, and I'm sure it will have been yours, that when you begin, when you first approach a a, a project like this, you think, oh, I know so much but i expect to learn a lot yeah the way. Sure, sure and yeah and then you're you're then holding on to something where you're then presenting it to a bunch of people who haven't been on the same journey yeah and part of the songwriting art is to draw them into your journey in not right. very many words and a few melodies isn't it and and that's i i think that's a, an important part of that art yeah that brevity kind of shortness the part that you don't get paragraphs and paragraphs yeah felt like it was one of the biggest challenges for us sometimes I was. Um, you mentioned the song "Satisfied." Um, yeah. And w- one thing that struck me there, which I, I feel like I've seen across a number of the Portuguese records, and again, I'm interested in asking about, is a, a lot of that song is built around a kind of a, a kind of melodic playfulness with the word mm-hmm. "satisfied," yeah. just kind of taking one word or yeah. one short phrase and, and making melody out of it and, and dwelling on it. And I feel like I've seen that a, a bunch of times. Is yeah. that? Uh, is that again? Is that a conscious characteristic? Is it a particular <laughs> writer who who just always does that? You say a word to them and they start singing it to you. Or how does how does that come about? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I I I'd say we're not not that organized in terms of yeah, a yeah. real real melodic strategy. I mean, I can tell you about that particular song. Yeah, but that particular song started with. Um, Every time we make a record, there's certain kind of edit. There's like editorial things we go through where we say like, do we have a hymn? You know, do we have a song that, you know, a church that only sings traditional hymns could do? You know, that kind of thing. And one of the questions we'll ask is, do we have songs here that are really relatable for children, like that that, that are simple for children? Mm. And so the song "Satisfied" actually began uh, as, in some ways, almost kind of like a children's song specifically in the vein of uh, in the sound of music when they sing Edelweiss together. 
Uh, I don't know if you I can, can hear, hear it, that. but the yeah, song kind of sounds like Edelweiss. I mean, yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's appropriated or that it's like ripped off yeah, or yeah. anything, but it's it's stylistically right down that kind of middle road, and so um, so that's kind of stylistically where it came from. And if you think about the chorus of the song, the chorus of the song is pretty much a children's song. May mm. our hearts be satisfied, satisfied, satisfied. May our hearts be satisfied. Fill us with joy and peace. I mean, that's kind of vacation Bible school stuff, you know? Um, but then, of course, the uh, the verses have a certain seriousness yeah. of sort of juxtaposing that very simple prayer. May our hearts be satisfied. Fill us with joy and peace with uh, the verses that really get into all of the ways that we are unsatisfied. Lord, we neglected your simple provision Instead we've invested in building up our wealth So tear down our storehouse Our walls and our towers And build us a table where all can come We made our doxicology album. One of our hopes was, I hope some other people will yeah. will pick this up and do it as well, because we could see this big gap. And I suppose as well, we we would think, oh, I yeah, feel like we did right. this bit okay, and we did that okay, but I wish we could have done that better. Are, when you look at this album, are there songs that you can still see need to be written? Are there things you think, oh, we wanted to capture that, but we couldn't yeah. quite do it? Um, so number one, yes, just like you said, there's things where we hope that other that churches will do them, and we hope that they'll have kind of a, a life of their own in congregations. Um, you know, we we had a checklist going in. I'm trying to remember because there were certainly some things that we didn't get to that we had set out to do and we sort of failed at. So mm. like you know, for example, one of the things on our checklist was the theological concept of jubilee, and that you know a lot of us think of jubilee. Yep as being like, yeah, that's the thing where every seven years or every 50 years, you know, that the, the debts are all forgiven, right? But uh, so we think of it as having a justice component or we think of it as having like a human redemption component. But there's this other really interesting aspect of Jubilee, which is that at every certain interval of years that you're actually supposed to give the land its rest, that you're supposed to give the land a break, right? Like not just forgive human debt, but actually forgive the soil, right? Like, yeah. like letting the, the land rest and life fallow. And so we this theological idea of let's ha- let's celebrate jubilee by giving the land rest, right? That was a theological concept we wanted to have on the record. Joel, we probably wrote I don't know 25 different versions of that song jubilee. <laughs> okay. Not because any of the song not because yeah. any of the melodies were good, but just because we wanted that theological concept, right? And we just kept trying to get at it and the only way and it was not going to end up on the record and the only way it ended up on the record was literally i was sharing a hotel room at the studio i was sharing a hotel room with um my good friend paul zock and at 10 o'clock the night before the last the night before our last day in the studio at 10 o'clock at night in our hotel room with the guitar paul was like you know we really we've got to get this jubilee idea on the record 
And I was like, I know, but we just haven't written any good songs about it. And at 10 o'clock <laughs> at night, we basically banged out that song as it appeared on the record. And then we showed up in the studio and, you know, Wendell was there, Wendell Kimbrew was there and Taylor was there and everybody finished it together. Yeah. But, um, but it, it's one of these examples where it's like, there's things that we want that we, the goals that we make, where we want to hit this theological thing. And then, um, and then in order to hit that theological thing, we have to actually come up with a good song, song around it, you know? So yeah, I would say there are a couple things that we didn't get to. Um, we certainly had it on the list that we were going to do a Psalm 104, like you already mentioned. And, uh, and we didn't, we didn't, yeah. I mean, there's a yeah. couple of good Psalm 104 settings out there already. And we didn't really feel like we topped any of them. So we felt like, well, we shouldn't be into that. Uh, I really wanted to get something from the book of Revelation about uh, specifically getting into the, the mm. leaves of the trees being for the healing of the nations. This idea of like the nations coming through the gates yeah. and they're not healed with like the machinery of the city. Like, like there's a sort of technological faith that we have that like yeah. healing will come through technology, but that there's this beautiful imagery that on the last day that the nations are healed by the tree of life. So I kept trying to, we kept looking for like, the 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 trees of the I mean the leaves on the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. We never quite got a song out of that. Um, I also mm. wanted to get something out of cleansing waters rising. There's that sort of Ezekiel 36 story about God calling us out into the waters and the waters rising and rising, and then kind of putting that against the Revelation imagery about the stream that that runs through the city of God. So we never quite got that. Um, we also recorded but didn't end up releasing a version of Psalm 46 getting into God as our refuge, our strength, oh, okay. and our shield. Um, it had a lot of great kind of nature image in it, imagery in it, but ultimately that psalm mm. finishes with this kind of ethical call to be still, which is great and important, but we felt like mm. ultimately for this project, sent kind of a mixed message when we're trying to write, like we're trying to write mobilization yeah. songs. Yeah. And I remember playing that song back to my wife after we recorded it and her being like, you know, it's a pretty song, but I'm not sure it quite reinforces what you're trying to say on what you're trying to say with this particular project. Um, oh, that's very that's very yeah, brave right. of her once so, you recorded no, I mean, it. In adi- Joel, in addition <laughs> to the fact that we were, that we write so many songs going into the projects, I mean, we also very typically will record five, six, seven, eight songs even in the studio we record that don't end up getting getting released. Um, so sometimes it's like we might have two different songs that are kind of about the same theological concept. And then it kind of comes down to which one was better, you know, little shootout death match afterward. Mm. Hmm. Uh, it's been so helpful talking to you about this, Isaac. I, I'm, you know, this is a songwriting podcast at its heart and, yeah, sure. and hearing about the process involved. Yeah, right. And I think for our listeners, particularly hearing about the kind of dedication to collaboration, to different yeah. voices and perspectives, to this yeah. idea of making 400 pots yeah. instead of just one That's pot right. and, and all those things, all things people can take away. And also the fact that you say at the end of all that, there were still some things we didn't manage. Yeah, sure. Or there were some things where all that work went in, but then the fruit appeared in half an hour in a hotel room and then another yeah, sure. hour in another room. I think all of those things are, are, are lessons, but encouragements to our listeners. Yeah, I hope so. And by the way, I don't, I don't know if I said this last time we talked or not, but what you're saying right now really gets at um, my two favorite quotes about songwriting, Yeah, uh, which are basically the same quote. <laughs> <laughs> my two favorite quotes about songwriting are, there's this uh, apocryphal quote attributed to Beethoven, which he probably never said, but you know it's, it's out there. Uh, the apocryphal quote to Beethoven was that if you only set out to write masterpieces, you'll never write one. All right, this idea that like 
you can't just say, oh, you know, like, like I'm going to sit down and I write something that's going to be really great. No, you can't only set out to write masterpieces. And then the, the, my second favorite quote is uh, from John Lennon, who said, uh, if you want to write a great song, just write a song every day for a year and one of them will be great. And I think that what both of those quotes are getting at is this notion that um, the vast, vast majority of us are not the kinds of creative literary geniuses where whenever we sit down at a keyboard or with our pencil or piece of paper, that everything we write is going to be great. And I think that there's a humility to accepting that, like saying, okay, not everything I create is going to have greatness. Not everything I create is going to be really good. But when I understand that there's a craft to this and I can get better and better, the harder I work at it, when I understand that, you know, if I want to write something that's great, maybe I need to write 10 songs or 100 Mm. songs in the hope that one of those songs is great. I think there's sort of a humility to that that I think is a really helpful antidote to what sometimes can kind of emerge as like, you know, this sort of 20th century stereotype of the tortured artist who like, oh, I everything I make is precious and mm. I have a very precious relationship with everything I make. We really try to encourage a, a, an environment where we can um, collaborate in a way that we don't have to have an extremely precious or self-interested relationship with every line that we write. Do you find that some writers get on well with that? Others find that a struggle? Yeah. Like some people, yeah, some people sure. really buy into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there are some writers that really have a hard time with that. Sometimes, I mean, I'm not going to name any names here, but <laughs> okay. sometimes, sometimes I think that it's kind of well-earned, right? Like there really are kind of creative geniuses out there who like, yeah, everything they write is amazing. You yeah. Know? So sometimes it's well-earned. And sometimes it's maybe not so well earned. But uh, but I would say that, you know, for people that really have a hard time collaborating in that way, for people that feel like, no, every single line that I write, like, it is great. Uh, I think for those folks, they're just not really attracted to a project like this. Yeah, and they sure. don't end up, you know, they don't typically get really deeply involved. I think that there's a kind of a natural selection that goes on where the people that we collaborate with kind of year after year are folks that, you know, really appreciate this sort of relaxed collaborative experience. Yeah. Isaac, thanks so much. Um, it, what's, what's up next for the Porter Skate or is it top secret? Oh man, no, it's, it's not top secret. <laughs> okay. We've kind of got, uh, we've kind of got a couple things already in the hopper that I'm really excited about. And then we're just beginning to brainstorm about the next thing. So we've got several things coming next after this, um, after this environmental justice project, Um, coming up maybe within the next six to 12 months, we're doing a collaboration with Fuller Seminary, kind of revisiting the theme of faith and work, but specifically in the kind of post-pandemic era of like thinking about essential workers and thinking about maybe some underrepresented kind of fields of work and how we can address some of those experiences of worship more. Um, We're we're also going to continue to write and record more Advent and Christmas music. Um, We were really surprised at what a big success our Advent songs record was last year. So it made us want to keep doing that. And then uh, really, really excited about a collaboration we're starting on in the fall of worship songs related to mental health and sort of trauma and recovery. That's a project that'll be coming out in 2023. So we've got lots of stuff, uh, lots of stuff coming up. Fantastic. Well, bless you, Isaac. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Great talking to you again as well, Joel. Peace to you. Good Lord, good Lord, good Lord. Constant quest for power Over all that we survey From 
on the lies that we devour From the fears we cannot face mm. Come and save us from our demons Come and strip away our hate Come, O oh Lord, restore our reason Christ, the time is late mm, Good Lord Good Lord Good Lord Deliver us Good Lord 